Digiday podcast. My name is Tim Peterson. I am senior media editor at Digiday. And I'm Kaylee Barber, media editor at Digiday. So Kaylee, this week you spoke with Amanda Cassett, who is the co-founder and president of Mojito and the co-founder and CEO of Serotonin, which is a Web3 focused marketing firm. Uh, Kaylee, let's kind of start there for anyone in the audience who is has heard Web3, because I feel like these days it's hard to have any kind of conversation or spend any amount of time online and not encounter the term Web3, but that doesn't necessarily mean that folks know what it is, but you've written an explainer on Web3, so you are absolutely someone who knows what this word means. Yeah, so Amanda gets into, she she's really good at defining kind of these bigger terms, um, but to intro the the episode, Web3 is like a blockchain-based internet, so it's very decentralized. There is meant to be um, less central authorities kind of gumming up the works, I guess is a, is a way to describe it. Um, but it's meant to just kind of have a very like fluid connection um, internationally online. Um, that's the very large scope idea of what Web3 is. A marketing firm that's rooted in that is... Basically, what they're trying to do is help companies that are are not currently um, operating on Web three. So maybe they're not, um, you know, investing in blockchain technologies. Maybe they're not, um, you know, dropping NFTs or you know, getting into the crypto game. Like they might not be doing those things so far, um, but they might be interested in learning more about it and approaching people who are quote unquote crypto native. Um, so it's, it's really about trying to get into another, reach another audience in a, in a new way that they're probably not doing right now. Um, if they were founded or rooted in web two internet. Um, so Amanda does a much more eloquent job of explaining the differences between Web 2 and Web 3. But that's kind of a high-level um, overview of of what serotonin does and what Web 3 is. And Web 3, I mean, it's a kind of polarizing topic because you have like the crypto evangelists out there who are very strong proponents of Web3 and all you know blockchain-related technologies. And then you have a lot of skeptics, um, especially like, you know, Proportionally, as Web three has gotten you know more popular and more attention, there have been more skeptics to emerge, and it feels like there isn't enough people that are kind of in between that are more pragmatic. I think you've done a really good job with your coverage of being more pragmatic. But is that something that Amanda is having to encounter when she's talking with marketers of just you know not hyping it up you know too much, but also having to address you know, any skepticism and valid skepticism that they may have. Yeah, you're right. It is kind of a, a polarizing discussion point, especially if you're spending any kind of time on Twitter recently. Um, it's either people who are very for um, Web3 innovation and, and crypto and NFTs, and there's people who are very skeptical of it, which is completely normal and natural. I mean, I think a lot of people still don't understand the uh the value proposition behind a lot of these innovations, and that's totally fine. It's it's a risky area to play in. Um, Amanda does kind of have, she obviously has stake in the game, having a company that's, you know, tied to this burgeoning technology, but she does have a, a pragmatic opinion behind it as well. And she does talk about, um, you know, the approach to Web3, like, don't just try to dive in head first as a brand. Don't try to dive in head first as a, a company. 
you really need to be thoughtful and, and careful with how you enter into the Web3 space because you have to know what you're doing and you have to come off as genuine. And I think she she talks about that towards the end of the episode quite a bit. And it is, uh, it is something that I think a lot of people have to think long and hard about before investing a lot of time and money. But um, to your point, again, there is a very kind of divisive nature of a whole new realm of technology. And I think it's a conversation that we're going to be having for quite some time beyond this episode. Right. But I'm excited to start with this episode. So I'll let you take it away. Thanks, Kayla. Thanks, Tim. Amanda, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. How are you doing? Doing great. Thank you, Kaylee, for having me. Yeah. So you were a crucial source for the guide I wrote on Web3. Um, WTF is Web3 a few weeks back. Um, for the people who have not read that one, definitely check it out. Um, but I wanted to have you on again because in that conversation that we were having around Web3, um, we talked a lot about how brands can kind of organically integrate into Web3, start approaching audiences that are native to the blockchain, and also like finding ways to make sure that they are activating, I guess, like appropriately in that platform because it's a different type of audience, right? And I thought that that was a really interesting kind of um, conversation that we couldn't really get into as much with that guide that I had written. Um, So I wanted to have you back on to talk about that. But I guess just to kind of set it up for our listeners, um, could you start off by telling us about um, Serotonin, which is your the company that you're at now, and also like what your background is in the Web3 space, because it's, it's fairly interesting. Yeah, sure. Happy to go into that. So I first encountered Ethereum in 2015 um, because I was hanging out in Brooklyn. Um, I was a tech media founder. I was going to meetups. I was talking to people. I got very interested in payments specifically because of the startup I had at the time and solving one of our problems. Um, And I just had my mind blown when I first learned about Ethereum. I hadn't been part of the group that was reached by Bitcoin in its early days. So my real um, first experience of decentralized tech was learning about Ethereum. Um, And I realized that it was going to change everything. And so I eventually dropped what I was doing and I was able to join the circus pretty early on. I was chief marketing officer at Consensus from 2016 through 2019. Consensus um, brought a lot of the early Ethereum products to market, really played a huge role in bringing Ethereum to market, created products like MetaMask and Fura, Truffle, basically trying to um, build the car to drive on the road because nothing nothing was built yet. Um, and so after about four years of that, um, chief marketing officer there, I uh, left to hang out my own shingle with my co-founder, Matthew Isles, and we started Serotonin, which has grown to become the largest Web3 marketing firm. And we really wanted to bring the best practices that we'd learned um, from the early Ethereum days, from the first ICOs, Um, from the first Web3 utilities and infrastructure to the next generation of companies that are building on Web3. And we really saw those as DAOs, DeFi, NFTs. Um, And so we built this practice really focused on Web3 native startups. So companies and projects that are starting out um, building on Ethereum, um, building in Web3. And over time, what happened was a number of Web2 and traditional companies started getting interested 
in the blockchain space. And part of this was DeFi summer, then the NFT boom um, brought a lot of mainstream interest into the space. And so we started hearing from big companies that exist in the in the normal enterprise world that exist in Web2, um, looking to get into Web3 and the metaverse. And so we started this practice of being able to um, work with those companies and help them transition into Web3. Because we think that similar to um, digitization, right? The process of taking companies from IRL, we'll call it in this conversation, onto the web. Now we're doing a second process, which is taking companies from Web2 to Web3. And so we're also uh, specialists in that. We also, um, through our various clients, um, learned about a bunch of white spaces in the market, things that companies wanted to use that weren't available. Um, And we spun up our own product studio internally at Consensus, and we built into those gaps. Um, And so we built a company called Mojito that we spun out of Serotonin's product studio, and Mojito is NFT marketplace infrastructure. And basically, similar to a Salesforce, it powers um, the e-commerce storefronts for NFT stores. And we think that a lot of the companies that are selling e-commerce on their own websites will wish to start selling digital goods on their websites. And we're ready with that commerce suite to accommodate this next generation in retail. Got it. Yeah. So a lot to unpack there. A lot of, I think, some, not to call it like jargon, but like industry lingo, right? That like maybe some people aren't super familiar with yet. Um, Obviously, there's been guides written on Digiday about some of these words, but to kind of do like a high level um, passover of some of those uh, terms, uh, it would be great to maybe explain, you know, okay, so Ethereum is a blockchain, right? Like, it, but it has a lot of other components to it. There's uh, the financial component. There's the um, the the use cases for it as well. Web three though is the larger umbrella to that. Can you talk about um, you know what Web three is and how it's different from Web two? So I want to take it back to the origins of Web one um, and the original designers of the internet. And there's a code that you may have seen in HTTP called a 404 error, um, and that's when a website's missing. But what you probably haven't ever seen is a 402 error. Um, because those don't happen. The original designers of the web expected there to be a payments layer intrinsic to the web, which is why they built that 402 error, but they never got around to building that payment layer. Um, And as a result, as businesses came onto the web, when they looked around for how to build their business models and how to monetize, the answer ended up being monetizing attention through advertising. And that's how we get the Uh, what Jaron Lanier calls the bummer business model, behavior modification engines for rent or something like that. Um, It's hilarious. And most people in Web3 agree with that evaluation. Uh, But that's how you get these, um, these business models that monetize attention, that sell ads. And the idea is that perhaps it turned out that way because there was not this originally planned uh, payments layer intrinsic to the web. And so there's a way in which Web3 is an effort to restore the original promise of Web1 by creating that um, web-native payments layer and adding it to the internet. Um, And so something like Ethereum is decentralized, and it's a decentralized um, network 
that allows for um, a money system to exist, yes, with ETH and other digital currencies that are built on top of it, but it's also a full um, programming language for building any kind of application with something called a smart contract. And a smart contract is really an if-then statement. If the weather tomorrow is over 80 degrees, then my address sends Kaylee's address one ETH. And in that case, the weather.com or whatever it is would be the the oracle, uh, just to define some more terms. Um, But basically, it means that you can create uh, not just digital currencies that you can securely send between people peer-to-peer without intermediaries. It also... um, lets you fold in that currency into applications and have financial applications uh, that use money that run on the web. Um, And then the third thing uh, to point out that it does is it enables the creation of digital objects that are ownable. Um, So an NFT, which is an ERC-721 token, um, is an ownable piece of internet real estate. Um, that you can pay for in cryptocurrency, or there are sometimes other ways to pay for it. But you can, um, on Web3, transact in this web-native currency. You can buy web-native objects, and you can execute applications that handle the both of them. Got it. All right. So for that payments layer, because I think some people will be like, well, I can buy stuff online. Like I can, you know, buy a a couch from Amazon or Wayfair and, you know, that happens. But what you're talking about is like paying users for essentially using the internet, right? Like having that kind of, um, cause like advertisers right now are the ones who get paid for people interacting with the web. Is that right? Like there's this kind of differentiation between who's being, um, awarded for web usage. Yeah, so just to give a really concrete example of that, so something like Bitcoin or something like Ethereum lets people transact peer-to-peer without any intermediaries. So when you're using Venmo or when you're using PayPal or when you're buying something in a retail storefront from a website, um, the intermediaries might be unseen, but they are taking a cut. And that's why big businesses have been able to uh, be built um, that handle web-native payments um, because they're taking that invisible cut. Um, And when and why is that a problem? Well, if you're trying to, let's say, uh, stand up a micropayment-based business model where users are paying to subscribe to something or to use some kind of tool in micropayments based on their actual usage, and you have this third-party intermediation taking a cut out of every transaction, it may not be worthwhile business-wise to have that micropayment-based business model because the margins get squished because of these third-party payment processors. So in this example, it unlocks a business model that logically makes sense, but that doesn't practically make sense in the context of third-party intermediation. Another thing it fixes is um, self-custody of assets. So when you're dealing with Bitcoin or ETH or any other um, digital currency that's truly decentralized and you're using it in a context where you're custodying your own crypto, so you're holding it yourself as opposed to holding it on an exchange or holding it in some kind of third-party situation, you have control over your own value. And you may say, my money is safe in a bank. And sure, there are examples um, where money isn't safe in a bank, where maybe there's a run on the banks and they're not letting anyone take their money out. But there are also examples of people's bank accounts being shut down and they're not being able to access their funds. Um, They're being shut down as a mistake 
uh, and still not being able to access their funds. Um, there being certain people in the world that can't get access to a bank account for whatever reason. Um, so there are all kinds of different use cases why it makes sense to self-custody one's own value and have control over one's own value, which is another benefit of disintermediation. Got it. Okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You talked about working with clients who want to turn their Web2-based company into a Web3-based company. Um, but I'm curious like, how that doesn't mess up all of the you know, existing infrastructure and business lines. Like if you're removing some of those intermediaries, how are they able to not see a lot of disruption, right? Is there like a way that you could take baby steps into Web3 without, you know, having to rewrite the entire playbook essentially? Yeah, sure. So most of the, um, most of Mojito's customers and most of Serotonin's clients aren't coming to us saying we want to recreate our entire business in Web3 and dispense with Web2. Um, and we're actually going to release a report on this pretty shortly called the Web 2.5, which is a, a term that we've coined for that in-between area um, that's getting denser and denser and that I think it makes sense for companies to be in. Um, but first, I would just say a lot of the best known businesses um, that are known for working in the crypto or Web3 space actually are not themselves Web3 business models. Um, I would point to like Coinbase, for example, which is a really well-known company in Web3, but they're, in terms of their main business model for their exchange, they're a centralized exchange. That type of business has existed since the dawn of time or since the dawn of, uh, well, not since the dawn of time, but since um, the dawn of money markets being, being the way they are. Um, and they are custodying your crypto for you um, in most cases when you're transacting on, on their exchange and they're giving their users exposure to the upside perhaps um, from having these crypto assets, but they're not themselves a Web3 based business model. So there are all kinds of in-betweens even among the companies that are known for their presence um, in Web3 and crypto. So you take a company like Sotheby's, um, which is uh, I think an incredible success story that we've worked on in this space um, from Serotonin and Mojito. And Mojito's the um, the infrastructure that services all of the Sotheby's metaverse platform where they've done extraordinary sales of NFTs. Sotheby's was founded in 1744. And they saw very early, to their credit, um, the burgeoning NFT space as an opportunity for their business. Um, and they, um, in partnership with us, um, we're able to take the core thing that makes Sotheby's Sotheby's and that makes Sotheby's valuable and translate that onto Web3 and start having a presence in Web3. So what makes Sotheby's valuable? They're these incredible curators of the best goods in the world. Um, and so they add so much value to the market by putting that Sotheby's seal of approval on an object saying this is worthy to sell in this elevated context because this has some kind of special story and special value and they validate its authenticity and they validate its merit. And so they emerged into the Web3 space um, to sell uh, this new style of art um, and really uh, legitimized in a lot of ways um, that art movement. Um, they did their first NFT sale in April 21. Um, it's a digital artist pack. Um, they sold that for 16.8 million. Uh, it was only the start. They do more than 100 million in NFT sales last year. 
um, which is part of their record-breaking gross sales of $7.3 billion. Um, they've done some incredible um, specific sales in the space. They did a sale of 101 um, board apes from the Board Ape Yacht Club. Um, and for an auction house that started in 1744 to get on the Forbes 50 list of companies leading the way in Web3 is a big journey. Um, and they were able to make that journey by translating what made them special and valuable from the context in which they operated into a Web3 context. And so that's what works. And what I'd recommend to brands is that they introspect and think about what the DNA is of their brand or their offering that makes it so beloved, that makes it so treasured and valuable, and think about a way to translate that into Web3 that brings that same advantage um, into, into Web3. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, then we'll be right back. Obviously, there's a lot of money being spent in this area, a lot of money being spent on NFTs specifically. Um, whether or not people think it's a fad or something not that's going be, to be as popular in know. a couple of years, there's still like very serious dollars being spent right now. But aside from like the financial aspect of taking a company like Sotheby's and bringing it into the Web3 space, um, aside from like the financial benefits of it, what are some of the like customer benefits, right? Because I feel like there's a lot of um, existing Web2 based customers, I guess we'll call them that, people who are non-crypto native, non-blockchain native, who don't really know what's going on, um, that, you know, you don't want to leave them behind either. Like, what are some of the the benefits of approaching this new, like, I guess, Web3 native audience um, for a, a company that's historically done very well in the way that it's been set up for years? Yeah. So a couple, couple answers to that. So I think for most brands that are in or approaching uh, the web 2.5, um, they have these really engaged existing customer bases. And by going into web three, they also have the opportunity to engage web three native users. And the problem and also the opportunity there is that those two audience types expect different experiences. So an existing uh, fan of a given um, traditional or Web2 brand um, might not have a Web3 wallet, might not be prepared to custody their own crypto. And that's why we architected the Mojito platform to be able to accept both fiat and also cryptocurrency payments so that we can accommodate the new user coming in from Web2 or from the traditional world, and at the same time accommodate um, the Web3 native user who wants to be who wants to use a Web3 wallet um, and custody their own crypto. And so that's really important for us um, building the platform we've built. And it's important for brands that are approaching this to acknowledge that they are going to have both. Um, there's a huge opportunity, whether we're talking about Web3 native users or whether we're talking about customers um, that are already fans of a brand porting over to align incentives with those users, with those customers in really powerful new ways. So traditionally, brands and their customers 
have had an arm's length relationship from each other. And there's an arm's length relationship with the investors or the stockholders. And one thing that Web3 really is, is a powerful alignment engine um, to collapse the categories of user or buyer, uh, company or team and investor into a single group that's aligned and part of a community that cares about a certain artifact or a certain experience. And that's all participating together and part of the value of that Web3 project comes from the community that it's able to accumulate. And so an example of that is uh, that I think is really powerful is the uh, Constitution DAO. Um, there was a DAO that formed to try to buy a physical copy of the U.S. Constitution that came to auction at Sotheby's. Um, it actually failed to place the winning bid. It was outbid. Um, but the members of the DAO uh, some of them withdrew uh, and get, got their money back, and some of them kept their crypto in the DAO, and there was actually uh, continued value and continued trading to the tokens um, for the DAO because there was monetary value uh, ascribed to the fact that that community had formed there. And why is that the case? It's because it's powerful to assemble groups of people that would um, promote and collaborate the, on these various projects, and that itself has value. And then um, simply the kind of CRM capabilities here to continually retarget the wallet holders within an existing community with new opportunities, with messages, with um, with ways to join new kinds of groups, even that, that group of people living on that Discord server talking to each other there, that thing has value. And um, Web3 has the ability to capture that value in a token and make it fungible, um, make it exchangeable for other types of value in a crypto context. Got it. So that um, that DAO, the Constitution DAO, it was working to buy a constitution from Sotheby's, but it wasn't directly associated with Sotheby's. It wasn't operated by Sotheby's. The, um, the DAO token that you mentioned was not uh, a Sotheby's token, right? The, like the these people are token. Sotheby's. The people token. Yeah, no, these, these, the DAO was a Sotheby's bidder. Um, it was not Sotheby's. So it was bidding on an item at auction at Sotheby's. Got it. But it's interesting that like Sotheby's is still interacting with a, a Web3 community, right? Like you, the, this community is something that um, could replicate itself in different formats and, and interact with companies that, um, you know, maybe haven't necessarily gotten into that like Web 2.5 or Web 3 space yet. Like there's implications for how these communities can apply themselves to non-Web 3 based companies in a way. Yeah, so the fascinating thing here for me is that um, obviously Sotheby's was one of the front runners um, leading the way into the Web3 market with NFTs. Um, but the, 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 the other direction happened too, where Web3 native um, buyers actually arrived at a traditional Sotheby's sale to buy a Sotheby's traditional object. And so I think brands um, entering Web3 can expect to find new audiences to sell um, to, sell to in Web3, new communities to build in Web3, but they can also expect, if they're, um, if they're smart, 
to attract Web3 native users and buyers into their Web2 or traditional offerings. So it's completely bi-directional. And then the other aspect is for a lot of brands, thinking of you know football clubs, thinking of um, festival brands, thinking of um, beverage brands, like there are ways that fans um, would wish to engage with the brand and engage with each other as fans of the brand that are monetizable, that aren't currently being monetized. So there's money being left on the table and there's an opportunity to build community and to create, you know, to foster affinity um, for these brands and for the other people who care about them that's being left on the table. And with Web3's capabilities, um, these kinds of brands can come along and scoop up um, not only that value, but also that engagement and fandom. So in that example, right, like you're, you're talking about fandom and, and even maybe like um, building membership models and things of that nature, is it all kind of rooted back to NFT experimentation at this point or a, a company needing to like launch their own um, coin? How how are some of those companies best equipped, I guess, to get into the, the Web3 space? Um, and does it always need to be via NFTs? Yeah, so I can um, I can point to a few different use cases. Um, I guess I would just sort of I would remind folks listening that NFTs are a tool. They're not a foregone conclusion. There's not just one kind of NFT or one thing you can do with an NFT. And same with fungible tokens. Uh, there's not just which is like ETH or Bitcoin. Also, like um, the People Token in the Constitution DAO is a fungible token. Um, basically how I explain NFT non-fungible versus a fungible is um, a bunch of folks on our team have kids. And when you drop your kid off at kindergarten and then pick them up at the end of the day, do you want your kid or do you want a kid? And if you want your kid, that's a metaphor for an NFT. Each one is different. And if you just want a kid, that's a fungible token. Each one is the same. Taking one would be the same as taking one of the others. Um, so these are these are tools. Um, and these tools are going to be innovated with and used by brands in all kinds of cool ways. Um, a couple different ways of thinking about an NFT for a brand is redeemables. Um, so, for example, there are some very expensive pairs of sneakers in the world. There are some very expensive bottles of wine and whiskey. Um, and oftentimes these things are purchased as collector's items more than they're purchased in order to use. And if you're buying one of those items as a collector um, and your plan is to resell it without using it, why store it and why pay for all the shipping and take all the risk of loss or of damage or of in incorrect storage if you're um, going to just pass it along to the next person without actually using it? Wouldn't it be easier to create an NFT representation of that sneaker or that bottle of wine um, and be able to pass that along, knowing that you could redeem it at any point. Um, another use case is experiences. So not every NFT needs to have a piece of content or a piece of art attached to it. Um, you could um, pass along a lifetime membership to a restaurant or to a festival. You could offer for your band um, backstage passes, um, a meet and greet, and then holders could exchange it 
until one of them wished to redeem it, and then they could redeem it for an IRL physical experience. Another example is token gating. And you can do this with an NFT, or you can do it with a fungible token. Uh, you can basically, I, I think there's a way in which um, some of these Discord chats are becoming the Soho house of, of the digital world um, in that um, you can enter certain chats if you have a certain amount of a fungible token or if you have a certain NFT in your wallet and there are APIs that plug in that let you verify that you're a holder and that lets you get into one of these Discord channels like Board Ape Yacht Club um, is an example of that with an NFT. Friends with Benefits is an example of using uh, you know, just a certain minimum quantity of a fungible token in order to get into the club uh, proverbially. And um, then you get access to this community and the community may be a source of new job opportunities. It may be a place to meet like-minded people. It may be a place to learn about new projects or new um, collectibles or items that you might want to purchase. Uh, there are all kinds of interesting different use cases for those um, token-gated communities. Um, and then finally, attaching various kinds of media and assets to the token um, which is probably the most um, widely discussed use case. But then on top of that, really seeing your holders as a CRM. Um, and the blockchain, the public blockchain, it's open ledger. It's, a, it's an incredible CRM like we've never seen before that lets you retarget and reach the people that, are, that have ever interacted with your NFTs, the people that currently hold your NFTs, and find new ways to reward and surprise and delight uh, your your community. Uh, and so I, I would just put all of those different uh, use cases out there um, as uh, as raw material that people can use to weave their own uh, experiments. Yeah, I think it's really, to your point, really important to differentiate what NFTs are because people are so very much focused on, oh, it's a JPEG. Like, why can't I just take a picture or a screenshot of a JPEG? Right-click, like, save. Right-click, yeah. save. <laughs> yeah. And like, I think there's a lot of holdup around that, but it is it is interesting to not only discuss the possibilities, but to also discuss like what's actually been done with NFTs. Like Board Ape Yacht Club is a good example of that kind of membership um, mentality, giving people access to something exclusive. Um, I wrote recently about Blockworks, which um, is a publisher that is creating this conference and they're creating like a NFT associated with a VIP ticket. Like there's different kinds of executions of this. My wedding in 2019 Every single place card at the dinner table was an NFT and you had to redeem it. Oh, really? And and last year, everyone started redeeming them and asking me if I had an extra one, asking me how to redeem it. It was really funny. They forgot about it for years and then they rediscovered them. And so um, there are all kinds of ways people can do it personally in their own lives. That's fascinating. Weddings and NFTs. That's. I feel like that's one of the first kind of like non-businessy, like, executions of NFTs that I've heard about. That's fascinating. It might be um, the first. It might be the first yeah. and it might be the only. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. Um, that's that's really fascinating. Okay, so for some of the brands that might still be on the fence about getting into this space or want to take their time to see like who else is doing it first, like what is what are some pieces of advice that you would give a company now as they are slowly working their way towards this? Yeah, I would say that um, 
you're going to end up in Web3 eventually, and you might as well get the extra buzz from being a leader. Um, and the way to form a good NFT strategy is to translate what makes your brand great into a Web3 context, which means knowing something about Web3 and caring about how it works. I would advise them to think about um, how their strategy is benefiting existing denizens of Web3 and existing members of various crypto and NFT communities, because our movement is really about how do we align with each other? How do we pool our resources to create great things rather than siphoning off or diverting resources? Um, and so I would think about I would think about that. And just to give an example, um, the way that Adidas, as they entered Web3, partnered with um, Web3 influencers like G-Money and partnered with Web3 native brands like the Board Ape Yacht Club um, that showed that they had an interest, um, that they wanted to use their clout um, to help grow those brands and spread awareness about them. And so I think that that North Star of how does this help grow Web3 is something that should be in all of their minds. I would also advise them to be thoughtful about their choice of technology stack um, and their choice of blockchain. If you build your NFT program on or your you know, Web3 or your token program on a blockchain that might not exist in a few years, then all that value would get wiped out. If you build it on a centralized um, or not very decentralized blockchain, then it's possible your blockchain will turn off or that it could be stopped um, as opposed to the kind of core value add of a blockchain, which is that it's immutable. Um, it's, it's always going to be there. I would also um, advise brands to not think they have to go all at once into the space. I think there are baby steps that brands can take to signal um, that they're getting interested in this space. Um, one suggestion that I've made to a number of brands is to uh, just change your Twitter handle to your .eth to buy your ENS domain. Don't change it to your .eth unless you've actually bought the ENS domain. And you can go to ENS um, and you can buy your domain. Um, and that signals that you're interested in this space. And then I would say I wouldn't go around using the terminology like high friends and like um, we're all going to make it or good morning. I would do that um, if there's something that you're planning that is actually going to benefit Web3 users or that is actually thoughtful about Web3 or will resonate with Web3 natives. Otherwise, that can come off as inauthentic. And we saw a couple brands accidentally kind of um, roll in that direction. And then the last one is I wouldn't confuse Facebook um, with the metaverse or meta with the metaverse. The people building in Web3 will kind of chuckle if someone uh, thinks that what Facebook Meta's building really has anything to do with the metaverse in terms of how we think about it, because we consider the metaverse um, and Web3 as being built on decentralized rails and pioneering new business models that um, right-size the value take-home for creators um, and for users and align with users as opposed to collecting and siphoning user data into walled gardens to monetize them in ways that cut the users out of the flow of capital. 
And so there's nothing more kind of anathema <laughs> to, a, to a real Web3 uh, denizen, uh, Web3 native, than that business model. And so um, treating that, that kind of entity like it's, like it's Web3 native is a, is a mistake. Um, there was a really funny tweet I saw um, from my friend Aubrey Strobel, which is, if Facebook dies in the metaverse, does it die in real life? Um, and that that made me chuckle a little bit. And it points to something larger in this space, which makes it different, which is that incumbents don't always win. We all have a bias in favor of incumbents. And we all think the brands or the companies that have been around for a long time are always going to be around. And I think that the future in Web3 will be a heterogeneous mix of both Web3 native startups and projects with the Web2 and traditional companies that have successfully transitioned. Um, some will get left behind and some Web3 native startups and projects will fail, but I think it'll be that mix. Um, and so it's not a given that if a brand is doing well in its current context, that's also going to thrive here without giving it much thought. Um, and it's also not a given that this new world is going to be dominated by players that started out there. I actually, I, I've repeated a few times kind of my my thought that, you know, the Nike of the metaverse is Nike. Um, the Sotheby's of the metaverse is Sotheby's. And the same way that there are Amazons and Ebays and all kinds of resellers of artifacts online, I think there are going to be all kinds of open marketplaces and resellers um, such as the ones that currently exist in Web3. But you're also going to want to see each of these companies create its own branded destinations and its own marketplaces and presences. And that's what we're really here to serve at Mojito. Quickly touching on that Facebook slash meta element to it, like in the advertising space, you know, Facebook is known as it's a walled garden. There's a lot of data in there. It's very much um, a siloed entity like Google. Uh, it It is a walled garden, right? So I think keeping in mind that um, and uh, we talked about this in an earlier episode with uh, my colleague Alex Lee about metaverses, and you can get more info in that episode as well. But um, yeah, it's it's the idea of a a metaverse is that it's interconnected with other metaverse platforms, right? Like it's a very interconnected uh, web and decentralized. Um, Meta doesn't seem to be doing that necessarily because Facebook itself is a centralized platform that just really has a very uh, strong grip on on data that it has in that platform. So I think that's it sounds similar to what you were saying in that regard. Um, and then quickly touching on uh, the ENS domains, because I feel like a lot of people are still learning about what those are. Um, can you give a, a quick description of what that is and um, why people should potentially think about buying an ENS domain? Yeah, so um, ENS, the Ethereum name service, is innovating on top of what a domain name can be and essentially also making it into an identity or making it into a wallet that you could use to transact with funds. Um, in addition to being a web destination. And so for a lot of individuals and companies, the same way they flocked onto the original web to buy their domain names, um, they are flocking onto ENS to make sure they grab their ENS name. And so that would be, you know, mcdonalds.eth uh, as opposed to uh, dot, .com or um, another, another URL. And so... Um, it's, uh, 
great way for brands to signal that they're interested in this space. ENS is also tokenized um, with a um, token that they released by retroactive distribution to reward the early users of the ENS network. Um, and so it also promotes that network to have brands come along and buy ENS domains. And so it's a way to actually strengthen by adding value to an existing crypto community that brands can do very easily. And just to also clarify the concept of like the Sotheby's of the metaverse is just Sotheby's. That's because (laughs) it's stepping into Web3 by executing on the strengths that it currently has? Or what's that kind of mentality there? Exactly. So if, if there's a storied brand in the market, it's because it's adding something that people want. And people will want that same thing, but perhaps not delivered in that same way in a metaverse or Web3 context. Um, And so it's a translation exercise. It's about doing the research or working with someone like us, frankly, um, to understand what the substrate is of Web3 and then creating a poetry of interweaving what Web3 is and what its capabilities are with that core value add DNA of that brand. And that's what leads to a really resonant Web3 strategy is being able to successfully import the real strength of the brand into the new context. Got it. Awesome. Well, that takes us to the end of the episode. Thank you so much, Amanda, for taking the time to speak with us today and really digging deep into some concepts that I think are quite frankly scary to some people. I think there's a lot of confusion around Web3 and blockchain, but this was very helpful in getting into in-depth detail into what all the Web3 and metaverse and blockchain could do for businesses right now. Thank you so much. Fantastic. And here to speak anytime. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with another episode.